Good morning, church. It's so good to be with you this morning, um, even though we're still digital. I think a year ago, I did a Zoom sermon and said, hopefully this will be over soon and we're still here. But it's still good um, to see you. Uh, good to be with you. My name is John Servick. I'm one of the elders here at Wayside. I'm super excited this morning to continue walking through the book of Hebrews with you. We're going to be finishing out chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, as Elias just read. So go ahead and get your Bibles open to that. Um, over the last two weeks, we've heard from Ben first two weeks ago, this glorious overview of the book of Hebrews and the general movement of Hebrews, these cycles of exalting Christ to exhort Christians. And then last week we heard from Kevin as he opened up the book in verses one through three in this first glorious exaltation of the greatness of Christ. Today, we're going to explore the first of several specific comparisons of the greatness of Christ against a specific aspect of the Jewish way of life in the Old Testament, the way that God related to the Jewish people before he sent Jesus. And the author of Hebrews uses a few different tools uh, to make these comparisons for the case that Jesus is better. And one of these tools is the Greek word kraton that we're going to be looking at today. So this specific word is used only 19 times in the New Testament. It's pretty uncommon. And 13 of those 19 uses we're going to find right here in this letter to the Hebrews. It's a comparative word that's translated as better or stronger or superior to. It's a strong comparison making the case that its subject is better than everything else. So today, through the use of this word, the author is going to make a case that Jesus is better than angels. And as we continue through this book of Hebrews, we're going to see that word repeated of Jesus is better, Jesus is better. Um, we'll see the author using that word to show that Jesus is, he brings a better hope to show that he's the mediator of a better covenant, which is enacted on better promises. It'll show that Jesus is a better sacrifice through which we as Christians gain access to a better possession a better homeland, and a better resurrection. So friends, get used to hearing that phrase, Jesus is better. I love that we were just able to shout, that out, shout it out in praise in that song, that Jesus is better. Um, and I love that bridge of that too that says, make my heart believe. That's what the author of Hebrews wants to do with this letter. He wants to make our hearts believe that Jesus is better. So friends, before we go any further, let's just stop and pray and ask God to do that for us this morning. Oh, Lord Jesus, we proclaim that you are better. We know that you are better, but Lord, make our hearts believe that. As we just sang out, we know that you are better than any sorrow, any victory, any comfort, and any riches. Lord, open our hearts today to see that you are better than any other message that comes our way, any other competing authority on our life. Um, Lord, just show us that. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me today, that your spirit would be with everyone hearing this, that you would be speaking directly to them uh, what you want them to learn this morning. Pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, church. So as I mentioned before, today we're going to be delving into the depths of exactly how Jesus is better than angels. But why angels? Why, after that first incredible exaltation of Jesus that Kevin covered last week, does the author move from that general greatness of Christ into a specific comparison of Jesus against angels? I think 
in our culture today, this is particularly hard to understand because we've generally lost the idea of what an angel really is. I know if your first impression of the word angel is you think of the goofy guardian angel Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life or a little chubby baby Cupid with tiny wings and a golden bow and arrow, you're probably at a loss for how anyone could ever think those creatures are on the same level as Christ. But to understand what the author is saying, we have to understand the context that he's writing to and the audience that he's writing to. So let's briefly look at a few cases from the Christmas story, from the first two chapters of Luke that are going to show us just what the impression angels would leave on people when they see them face to face. So first in Luke 1, 11 to 13, we see Zechariah, who's the father of John the Baptist. And the angel Gabriel comes to him while he's in the temple. And it says that fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. A few verses later, we see Gabriel again coming to a young girl named Mary, who would be the mother of Jesus. And when the angel appears to her, she was greatly troubled. And the angel says to her, do not be afraid. And of course, we can't forget the shepherds of the nativity story who are out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night when an angel of the Lord appears to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. Fear not, do not be afraid. They're filled with great fear. Clearly, these are powerful, majestic beings, and we see an impression of what it's like to come face to face with them. These are not cute or goofy creatures. These accounts, along with hundreds of others throughout the scriptures, clearly portray angels as powerful, majestic beings who are worthy of honor and respect. And as I said, our modern society has generally lost this view. And perhaps even after reading those and getting an idea of the biblical view of angels, it's hard for you to understand this comparison of angels being put on the same level as Jesus Christ. But think about it this way. What modern messengers, messengers do you have in your life who are competing with Christ as the ultimate authority? In our time, we have messages hitting us constantly. Between media, bloggers, speakers, pastors, tweets, and YouTubers, we are buffeted by messages all day long that seek to make more of the messenger and less of Jesus Christ. Church, with so many competing messages flying in our direction, it can be really hard for us to determine what is trustworthy. But the truth is, the trustworthiness of a message is rooted in the authority of the messenger. And today, in this first chapter of Hebrews, the author is going to show that Jesus Christ is the ultimate messenger from God who carries the full authority of God. So his gospel message must be the ultimate guide to our lives. Now, before I go any further, I want to do a quick aside because I'm going to use that term gospel a lot. And I want to just go ahead and demystify it for you in case it's a word you hear thrown around in Christian circles but um, don't really know what it means. So very simply, it's translated just means the good news. It's the message of Jesus Christ. In its simplest form, it's the message that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, was raised on the third day, and ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God. From there, the entire New Testament makes up this gospel message and contributes to the truth of it. 
but the bare bones of it is it is the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, that is the message of Jesus. So what is the message of angels? Throughout human history, angels were the primary messengers of God. In fact, both the Hebrew word malach and the Greek word angelos that we see translated angels throughout the entire Bible literally just mean messenger. The angels were esteemed as the messengers of God who brought the law to Moses and the messages of God to God's people. So the gospel is the message of salvation through Jesus Christ, and the message of the angels is everything that came before them. Today we'll see the author of Hebrews using the very words of the Old Testament that his Hebrew audience knew so well to exalt Jesus and his message above angels and their messages. Now, if you're looking in your Bible and you see Hebrews 1.4, it starts right in the middle of the sentence. And that means that to fully understand what it means, we've got to go back. So, church, look at Hebrews 1, 3, and 4 with me. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Man, so I also just wanted an excuse to read that beautiful exaltation of Christ again in verse 3. So we see here, after that general exaltation, that the author moves directly into the specific comparison of Jesus is better than angels. So let's look at that. After he he has made purification for sins, that's completed. He has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, that's a completed action. And now he has become better than angels. How much better? It tells us right here. As much better than the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The name. Now, again, a name is something today that doesn't often mean a lot. My name is John, but that's just the word you say when you want to get my attention. It doesn't carry much more weight or meaning than that. But in this time, a name carried in it the fullness of a person's identity and their character. So much of Scripture is dedicated to glorifying the name of God. In fact, we spent the Advent season, if you remember, going through Isaiah chapter 9, looking at the names that are ascribed to the coming Christ, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And for the rest of this chapter, the author of Hebrews is going to expound on the character that's imbued in the name of Jesus Christ. He does it using a collection of quotes from the Old Testament that would have been very familiar to his his audience. Again, a quick aside, there's going to be a ton of quotes from the Old Testament as you read through Hebrews. And the reason is that the audience he was writing to knew them so well. They knew the significance and the weight they carried because it was their history that he's referring to. Now, if you're not as familiar with those, when you come across these quotes, I would encourage you to turn back in your Bibles. Turn back to the Old Testament. Look at what is said. Read the surrounding verses, the surrounding chapter, the entire book if you have time, and you'll understand the context of how these are being used which will help you gain a more complete understanding of the author's meaning in Hebrews and a more full joy in Jesus Christ. 
So the author does something really cool with the quotes we're going to look at today. He's quoting mostly from the Psalms with two of them from other books of the Old Testament. And as he does it, he very clearly attributes these words written by humans in the Old Testament as the actual words of God. And beyond that, he says these are the actual words of God that are directed toward either the sun or angels. So let's look first at verse 5 where we see a collection of verses of quotes of God speaking towards the sun. Hebrews 1.5 says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So to start out that rhetorical question, to which of the angels did God say this? The answer is clear that God has never and will never say these things to any angel or anyone other than the true son. This most excellent name, the son of God, is reserved for Jesus Christ alone. We see throughout the scriptures that Jesus is the pre-existent son. In John 1, we see that he is the word who was at the beginning. The word was with God in the beginning. We see that he is the incarnate son. Again, in John 1, we see that he is the word that became flesh. He is God who became human and walked the earth to reveal God the Father to us. And as we just read in Hebrews 1.3, he is now the exalted son who, having completed his purification for sins, sits at the right hand of God the Father on high. This status and The honor it carries with it of the Son of God is reinforced again as we'll get to verse 6. We're going to see him called the firstborn. So not only the Son, he clarifies it's the firstborn Son, the Son who carries with him the right to the inheritance, the right to the status of God. So let's read that together. Hebrews 1 verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Church, this is an outrageous claim of power. This is God commanding all of his angels to worship someone. He can't command them to worship anyone other than himself. As we've already said, these angels are glorious, majestic beings. They answer to God alone, and they worship God alone. And right here, we see God commanding them to worship Jesus, the Son. We see this in the scriptures as well. We see evidence of this. We look at uh, the newborn Christ Jesus in that Christmas story right after uh, the Luke passage we read earlier about the shepherds. In 2, chapters 13 and 14, it says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. Again, at the return of Christ, the second coming, we're going to see John in his vision in Revelation says that he hears the voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Church, on that day, thousands of angels will shout out. They will bow down and they will shout out with a loud voice that Jesus is better. It is clear that these beings are nowhere near on the level of the sun that they worship. Angels are examples of worship. They are not objects of worship. 
continuing our text now um, to verses 7 through 9, we're going to see another direct comparison of angels and the sun. So starting in verse 7, it says, Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun... He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So let's look first at that address to the angels in verse 7. He says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. What does that mean, that they are winds and flames of fire? This is one of those times when you have to go back and look at this quote in its context in the Old Testament. If you do that, you'll see that this comes from Psalm 104, which is a long praise song just celebrating the power of God over everything in creation, including his ministers, his angels, his servants, which is referencing there, who he creates and he commands to do his bidding. That's the sense of this angels being winds and flames of a fire. It is they are an expression of another power outside themselves. They are the visible expression of God's power acting not on their own volition, but on the command of God. And then we see this great contrast of the sun. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That is incredible. Again, we see God saying to the Son that, he, that the Son is God. We have this direct statement that Jesus Christ is the true King. He is the King who reigns forever and ever. He rules justly, he loves righteousness, and he hates wickedness. He's the fulfillment of everything that earthly kings aspired to be. And at the end there, you see, he has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Now, again, anoint is a word that I don't use very often, and you probably don't either. Um, To anoint literally just means to smear with oil. And in the context of Jewish religious ceremonies, it was an act of setting apart a priest or a king for the service to God. And for centuries, the Israelites looked forward to and had prophesied that a Messiah, which just means the anointed one, would come and would fulfill all of the promises of God. In church, that word Messiah translates into Greek as Christos, which is where we get the word Christ. That is, Jesus Christ is the ultimate anointed one, the ultimate king. But the glory of the Son doesn't stop there. The author's going to continue in verse 10. So he quotes from another psalm. This time it's Psalm 102. Let's look at that together. Hebrews 1.10 says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. This is incredible. He's still talking about the sun. He's talking about the sun who walked on the earth, and he is saying, You are the creator. You laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. We talked about this last week as Kevin opened up Colossians 1.16, which I'm going to read again here where it says, By him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Church, 
This is incredible. This is Jesus Christ who he's talking to. The him in that verse is Jesus Christ. And as Kevin elaborated last week, this means that Christ has created everything from massive galaxies to the tiniest speck of dust to individual atoms and everything in between. This also means that Jesus Christ is the creator of angels. He's the creator of the very angels that this Hebrew audience, this church was tempted to elevate to the same level as Christ. Clearly, Jesus the creator is better than the angels he has created. Moving on in verses 11 and 12, this is continuing that same quote uh, from Psalm 102. So it says, they will perish. And again, this is continuation of the quote. So the they is the foundations of the earth and the heavens. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Man, what a beautiful and powerful image the psalmist is painting here. The heavens and the earth, the entire created universe will wear out like an old t-shirt and be tossed aside, but Jesus Christ will remain. The universe is constantly changing and decaying. This is a fact of life. We see it on a grand scale in the universe and we see it in our daily lives as the world is changing and there is so much turmoil in everything we face. But in all of that, Jesus Christ is the same. This author of Hebrews repeats this towards the end of his letter. As some of his closing words in verse 13:8, he encourages his readers by saying, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Church, be comforted, be encouraged by that. Jesus Christ is everlasting. Jesus Christ is unchanging. He is constant and steady when the world seems to be turning upside down every day. And finally, church, we see the last quote from the Old Testament here in verse 13. The author is going to book in this section with the same truth that we read in verse 3. Let's look at verse 113 together. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Again, the rhetorical question here. He has never said this to any of his angels. He never will. Um, This is a quote from Psalm 110, which was written by David and would be immediately recognized to this author's Jewish audience as a prophecy of the coming Messiah, that anointed one that we talked about. This is one of the most quoted Psalms throughout the New Testament. When Jesus is teaching... When he's walking on the earth and teaching, he quotes this psalm, and he says that David was speaking about him. After Jesus' ascension, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles, and Peter gives the first sermon to the Christian church at Pentecost, he quotes this psalm, and he says, this is talking about Jesus, and he uses it to make the point that God made Jesus both Lord and Christ. The author of Hebrews is so convinced by these words that he references Jesus sitting at the right hand of God five times in this letter. In one of these instances, uh, in chapter 10, he's going to explain the same important point that Kevin made last week. Uh, Let's look at chapter 10, verses 11, 14. It'll come up on the screen. It says, 
Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Church, Again, Jesus alone has earned this right to sit down at the right hand of God. He has earned that right by completing the work of salvation through his sacrifice on the cross once and for all. Truly, no one can compare to the greatness of Christ. So after all these verses and these quotes, just amplifying the greatness and the glory of Christ, um, We've seen how excellent his name is, that he is the son of God. He's praiseworthy as the angels bow down before him. He's the true king. He is the creator. He's everlasting and unchanging. And he sits down at the right hand of God. But then what are we to make of angels? Where do angels fall in the picture of God's plan today? The author closes this section with verse 14 which outlines his views on what angels are doing now. Let's look at that together. One fourteen, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Are they, so this is angels, aren't angels all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So Jesus is the king And the angels are his ministering spirits. They're servants of the true king. The incredible thing in this verse, right there at the end, is who they're sent to serve. It's what Jesus, what this king, our our king Jesus, sends them to do. It says they are sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Friends, that is us. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are a believer in Christ, then you are among those who are to inherit salvation. And Jesus the King sends out his servants to minister to you and to me. Clearly, these ministers, these servants are not worthy of the same praise as their king. In viewing angels or anyone other than Christ too highly can lead us down a slippery slope that the author urgently wanted to protect his readers from. Throughout history, we can look at some catastrophic examples of men who did not heed this warning, men who fell down that slippery slope. Supposedly angelic proclamations have led millions of people away from the truth of Christ. We can look at the false religion of Islam for a clear example, where the so-called prophet Muhammad received angelic proclamations that confused and distorted the truth of the gospel and caused a message to spread around the world that takes away the glory and deity of Jesus Christ. Church, any message that proclaims Jesus and falls short of the truth that Jesus, the only Son of God, is fully God and nothing less. As the angels will shout and worship at his return, Jesus alone is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. 
For Jesus is the ultimate messenger from God who delivers the ultimate message of the gospel. So church, what messages do you have competing with the gospel in your life? Maybe it's not apparent. Maybe it seems benign. Um, But what are you hearing that's confusing and distorting the message of Jesus? How do you even know when you receive a message if it is taking away from the glory and deity of Christ? The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, right at the beginning, offers an exhortation to them that gives us the secret to knowing if the messages we're receiving align with the true message of Christ or not. So look at Galatians 1, 6 through 8 together. It'll be up on the screen for you. It says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So church, the gospel message itself is our ruler by which we measure all other messages that come our way. The gospel is the lens through which we view the world and all messages that are coming in. Everything must be tested against scripture. This goes for things that you hear on the news, on a YouTube video, through a Facebook post, or even the things I'm telling you now, the things you hear preached. Take it to Scripture. Test it against Scripture and see if it is making Jesus Christ ultimate or lifting anything else up to his level. To use the gospel message in that way, we have to know it. We have to know the Scriptures and we have to know the ultimate messenger, Jesus Christ. Church, that's the last thing I want to leave you with today is that Jesus is not just the ultimate messenger. He is the ultimate message. He is the gospel. As Kevin preached last week, Jesus is the final and the greatest word from God. We see in John 1.14, he's the word that became flesh. He is the word of God. He is the gospel and he is not far off. He's not a mystical figure that we cannot know. God wants to be known by us, so he sent his son to walk on the earth and reveal his nature to us. He has even created us and placed us at a point in time so that we might know him. Church, in Acts 17, it tells us that. It says we are created and placed at a spot that we might know him. When Paul is speaking speaking to the church, not even the church, he's speaking to unbelievers in Athens, and he says, he made, God made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he actually is not far from each one of us. He has created us, determined our allotted periods and where we live so that we might know him. And friends, he invites you to know him today. Church, next week, I'm really, really excited to hear Martine preach to y'all. I love to hear the way that the, the word of Scripture speaks to him, and I'm excited to hear him open it up for you. He's going to be moving into chapter 2 of Hebrews, which we'll see starts with the word therefore, which is a key word making the transition that we're moving from chapter 1, exalting Christ, to a section of exhorting Christians. 
a section that's saying, now that you understand how great Jesus is, here is what you do with it. Um, so church, I look forward to that. Um, please just join me in prayer. Um, let's ask the Lord to, again, make our hearts believe this truth.